Let's turn then to Acts chapter 2, verse 37. And today we're going to um, just cover the last part of this chapter here. But there's some big stuff here, so we want to devote some time to it. Let me begin by reading the first paragraph there. <clears throat> now, when they heard, remember, this is after Peter's sermon, right? Peter stood up on Pentecost. This is all happening on the same day. A lot was, was going on here. Peter stood up after the, um, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And everybody, oh, what does this mean? Peter says, let me tell you what it means. Stands up, delivers his sermon, which kind of ends with this real punch in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Bow! Now, we pick up in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers! What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right. A lot, lot that's packed into the, these first few verses. What, the rumbling down the... Oh, okay. We were just having... No, we were having a discussion. Theological debates? <laughs> My favorite kind. Baptism. Okay, good. Well, we're going to get after it. But uh, the, the first point to make, though, number two on your handout, the word does the work. The word does the work. Uh, they heard this. They were cut to the heart. This is the work of God's word, what it does, and what only God's word can do. That's not to say that people can't just have a really nice speech, some public speech that really inspires or convicts folks. That can happen. But the kind of deep-seated work of conversion only happens through the Holy Spirit working in and through God's word. There's many passages we could go to. Give you just um, one really well-known example from Hebrews 4. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, as Paul also says in Ephesians 6, is the sword of the spirit, this double-edged sword that cuts to the heart, cuts to the quick. There's a law side of that, right? Where it convicts us, exposes our sin, causes us to realize, whoa, wait a second. I'm not who I thought I was, or I'm, I'm more of a sinner than I ever realized. Um, but uh, that also brings the, the good news of the gospel to bear on us too. And I, in his own way, Peter's going to uh, apply that also. But this is so essential for us to recognize, of course, as a preacher, but also for all of us as Christians, that the word is the one that does the persuading. Um, as you guys know, I had written my, my um, dissertation on preaching and how to be uh, you know, persuasive for the word to be maximally effective. But at the very end of it, I ended with um, a, a quote from my advisor on why I am not persuasive. Because at the end of the day, I mean, as all Christians know, and, and preachers especially realize, it's nothing that we can say or do that's going to bring somebody else to faith. It's only the power of the Spirit working through the Word. See? 
our, our Lutheran Confessions, Augsburg Confession, states this uh, beautifully and simply. This is Article 5 from the Augsburg Confession, kind of the first core Lutheran confession of faith um, from 1530. It says that we may obtain this faith, the office of preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was instituted. For through the word and sacraments, as through instruments, the Holy Spirit is given who works faith, where and when it pleases God, in them that hear the gospel. Okay. So the word is that instrument that God uses in order to create and elicit faith in the hearts and minds of those who hear. Okay. All right, so this is, this is recap. You guys know this. We're Lutherans. Word of the Lord endures forever, VDMA. That's our Lutheran slogan. So thy strong word, on and on it goes. We hear this, we read this, we're like, yes, Peter with a good Lutheran sermon. Some law and gospel right there, bringing it to bear on the people. And they're cut to the heart, and they say, what shall we do? Now, if this was a really good Lutheran sermon, Peter would then say, there's nothing you can do. (laughs) But this is, in effect, what he says. When he says, repent and be baptized, what he's saying, in effect, is, look, it's not about anything that you can do. Just turn away from your sin and receive God's grace given to you through holy baptism. The point is not, okay, that's something that we are doing. The point is recognize that you are lost. I mean, that's really the the call there. Recognize that you are lost apart from God's grace given in Christ. So uh, Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So number three on your handout, God's promise for all is received by faith and baptism. And these things go hand in hand, faith and baptism. Um, We can get more into that. But this is really just um, following fast on the heels of the Great Commission. Jesus' final words charged to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Okay, Um, so here you have kind of a a nutshell definition of baptism given by Peter here. Holy baptism is, one, in the name of Jesus Christ. More on that in just a second. Two, for the forgiveness of sins. Three, with the gift of the Holy Spirit. For, for us and our children. Okay. So I want to unpack each part of that, and if you have questions along the way, stop me. Okay. So the first thing is, well, when Jesus institutes baptism, he says do it in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the triune name. Then Peter says here, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, says in the name of Jesus Christ. And indeed, in other places in the book of Acts, you have the same thing, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So what's the deal? Is it to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, or is it to be baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Oof. Okay, before I give you my thoughts, what's your reaction? Is this something that you've wrestled with before? Or if not, what's kind of your, your knee-jerk reaction to that? While I enjoy my snickerdoodle. 
Doesn't make a difference. Doesn't matter. Yes? Since they're all one, I guess you could say it doesn't make any difference. Okay. Uh, so when the court says since they're all one, meaning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, consider this. There, um, with just about any Christian who um, you know, grew up and was baptized in a different tradition, whether they were Catholic, Baptist, what have you, they become Lutheran. Do they need to be rebaptized? They don't, because this connects to what we said before, the word does the work, working through the water. You're baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a valid baptism, even if you were part of a church body that, that didn't recognize it or acknowledge it as such. Um, what about if you come from the Mormons? If you come uh, from Mormonism to Lutheranism, do you need to be baptized? Do they baptize? They do baptize, but they do not baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, Matt. I have to back up. Go ahead. You said the baptism before this. Okay, so here in Acts, we're saying baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What are you saying the baptism was before that? Matthew 28. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew 28. Just hmm? Jesus. So, and then... How did the Mormons baptize? In the name of Jesus. Just... And um, you have other church bodies... Um, one sect of Pentecostalism known as the Oneness Pentecostals. Um, incidentally, a real popular TV preacher by the name of T.D. Jakes is from this uh, church, and it's not, it's not a Trinitarian church. They, re they reject the, the Trinity. That would be another church. That you come from that, we would baptize you because you've not been baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, yeah, this matters. Like, what's going on here? Um, what, what's happening? Um, bless you. <laughs> Um, just let it go, sister. Otherwise, your head's just going to explode right off. Um, I'll just say I don't have a conclusive answer for you here. But I do have some sanctified suggestions uh, informed by um, my, my study and so forth. I want to um, point out, let's see. Okay, give you one example. Go to Acts chapter 8. This is interesting. And I'll show you where I'm going with this in a second. So Acts chapter 8, verse 14, it says this. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Say, well, wait a second. Isn't that what Peter said? They were only baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here, that was insufficient, which seems to mark up a point for the, okay, it needs to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's different there? Or what's lacking from that versus what Peter says in Acts chapter 2? There it says, they were only baptized in the name of Jesus. Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Say, well, what difference does it make? Isn't Christ just his last name? And we're leaving that up? No. You guys know that's not the case. Christ is, is that title um, of the Lord. He is the Messiah Jesus, Christ Jesus. Now, here's why this, is, I think, is especially um, relevant for this question of baptism into the name. Because 
in the name Christ itself, in that title, you have implied all three persons of the Trinity. It's kind of along what Court was saying. You have all three persons of the Trinity are sort of baked in, it's a weird way of putting it, but baked into that term Christ because it's a verbal term. To the, Christ means the anointed one, okay? Comes from the, the Greek verb creo, to anoint. Creo. So, in Christ, in that name, in that uh, application, Christ, you have the one who anoints, which is God the Father, okay? Then you have the anointed one, which is the Son, Jesus. And then you have the anointing itself, which is the Holy Spirit. So that, in the, in the name Christ itself, in the anointed one, you have all three persons of the Trinity right there. For Peter to say, be baptized in the name of Jesus the Christ, is uh, implicit of all three persons of the Trinity. So that later, when somebody is baptized simply in the name of Jesus, it's insufficient because it doesn't have that Trinitarian heft to it. Now, as I say, this is, I can't give this to you as a rock-solid conclusion, but to me, it makes sense. All right, Matt and then Court. I am just wondering in, in 8 uh, here if it's not the fact that they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Maybe that's irrelevant. It's that they hadn't laid hands on them. Well, and some people will, will really make a case for this at, and almost use that as a case for ordination, being a separate sacrament that, or confirmation for that matter. Because at confirmation, you get the hands on you from um, the bishop, I mean, traditionally, and then that, thus it has this separate sacramental weight to it, that when you're confirmed or ordained, you get an extra jolt of grace. Um, I would, what I would contend, rather, is that through the apostles, they have this... Um, special channel of the Spirit, where they, I mean, we see this through their ministry, they're able to invoke God's Spirit and to pray over somebody and simply by the laying out of hands bring that. But I don't think that it's normative. In other words, that this is saying this is how it should be or has to be for the church subsequently. Um, but, I mean, it, you read that passage and it can, you know, you can get that impression, I think. Well, because it seems to me that the key is that they Heard that they received the word of God, but the spirit had not fallen on them. So right. there was like this other part lacking. What was lacking, right. Yeah. And what I'm suggesting is that <clears throat> what was lacking is not the laying out of hands per se, although that can do the job, um, but being baptized in the fullness of the triune name. Or it could be both. So, the court. Do the Mormon, you said the Mormons baptize in the name of Jesus. Yes. But do they view Jesus as a good prophet? Court's question, do the Mormons view Jesus as a good prophet? Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. yeah. So that's the whole difference. It's not God, it's prophet Jesus. Yeah, no, you, I mean, the Mormons do not believe in, in the Trinity. They do not confess the deity of Christ, certainly not in the way that we do and that, I mean, Orthodox Christian Church does. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the big issue. So maybe that's what we've got here too, is that they were looking at Jesus as the good teacher, the prophet. It could be, yeah, it could be that they had insufficient Christology, as you would say, 
that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can I wouldn't that. say that because I don't know that word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Leslie, and then back to Matt. Yeah. Um, in Acts 8, there, it said when they had heard that Samaria had received the word of God, yes. it doesn't necessarily say that they were yet believers either. Sure. So yeah. that they had just received it, they'd heard about it. So, hey, we're going to send you guys down there so they right. can learn more. Yeah, I mean, and so when you think of uh, the parable of the sower, for example, Jesus talks about um, the seed being cast out. And so maybe there's that sense that they've received the seed of the word, but it has not yet, um, there's, they're still in that kind of limbo. Satan could snatch it away, and so they want to reinforce it, plant it through uh, the waters of baptism. That could be. Yeah, go ahead, man. What was different about the about Samaria, because the, the footnotes in here are saying something about um, the Samaritans who practiced different yet related religions. What, what was being taught in Samaria? Well, so, yeah, so Samaria, um, unlike other parts of uh, Palestine where they would have been going and proclaiming the word, were themselves already viewed as kind of heretical by Jewish standards. And so they, <clears throat> the Christian proclamation kind of has two fronts to that. I mean, with the Jews, um, the, the, the faithful believing Jews who were there in, in Jerusalem and Judea, you already have a kind of more of a straightforward proclamation. But then you go to Samaria, now you're dealing with some other issues, that uh, faith issues as well. So I think that's probably what's being um, alluded to. Yeah, Becky. This might be totally off base, but I can't help but notice one of these directions for baptism comes from Jesus. Yes. And one comes from people. Yeah. And I know that, you know, the whole Bible is inspired, but I mean, if you have your choice to quote Jesus or quote Peter, shouldn't we always lean on how <laughs> Jesus described to baptize? Yeah, fair enough. Yes. But no, I mean. he said to do it with all three names. Exactly. Right. At, I mean, at the end of the day, like, you never want to pit scripture against scripture right. per se, but we do have the principle of interpret scripture with scripture. And the one that's plain and clear and straight from the mouth of the Lord is the Matthew 28 one. And it has been the most influential, arguably the most influential and significant verse in the entire New Testament. And the reason being because it's the most clear, unequivocal confession of the Trinity. And then it's tied with the, the gift of holy baptism. So thank you for just bringing us back to, like, guys, all right, McFly, come on, McFly. Okay, one last thought on that. Go ahead, Corey. The woman at the well. Uh -huh. Wasn't she a Samaritan? Yes, she was. And Jesus then went through and explained to her, you have this part of it, but you don't have this part. Right, he, kinda, he, he sort of cut to the chase with her, right? Yes. And uh, yes. brought her back to the, the truth of the faith. So, I mean, in a sense, um, I think the proclamation is able to, um, it's able to cut through whatever, because as we'll see going through Acts, it doesn't just go to Jews, it doesn't just go to Samaritans, it goes to Gentiles, goes to Greeks, go, and that's part of the power of the witness and the word um, is that it, uh, it's able to speak to people from all different walks of life. Okay. All right, I'm not even done yet talking about baptism here. So, for the forgiveness of sins with the gift of the Holy Spirit for us and our children. And that's really the one that, um, as much as anything, tends to trip people up today is, okay, is who should be baptized? Not whether or not baptism should happen, but you know, is this something that A, confers grace, actually does what it says, so actually washing away sins, and B, um, and the, your answer to A is going to influence your answer to B, but should it only be for 
adult professing Christians, or you know, not necessarily adult, but you know, old enough people to confess, or is it for everybody? I mean, for even babies, right? Uh, of course, you know where Lutherans fall on this. We practice what's called pedo-baptism. That's the technical term for it, infant baptism. And this is following along with, I mean, this is what the church did universally up until the time after the Reformation. I mean, among Catholics, Orthodox, everybody, infant baptism was not called into question until you had the group that was known as the Anabaptists, um, which kind of the forerunners of, of today, not, not so clearly the line to Baptists, but more to Mennonites and uh, to those strains. But Anabaptist literally means be baptized again. They said, no, your baby baptism doesn't count. It's not good enough. You need to be baptized again, or you need to be baptized for the first time only when you can actually confess the faith for yourself. Yeah, listen. Is, that, is this where they get that then? Where, because it says repent and be baptized. An infant can't repent. Sure. This is the, yeah, this is the argument. And I mean, um, I, I don't see them going to this passage so much because here you have a pretty clear uh, comment from Peter. This isn't, promise isn't just for you. It's for you and for your children. Okay? The promise isn't just for you. And that's in keeping with um, the Old Testament uh, uh, analog of circumcision, where circumcision was for the newborns, right? On the eighth day, you'd be circumcised. Now, in the New Testament, we have the even greater gift of God, this covenantal promise uh, through holy baptism that now, and Paul makes that connection with circumcision in Colossians chapter 2, that uh, here, how much more then should this gift be given to, I mean, to the youngest? Um, but they would say, well, yeah, but if you can't confess it, if you can't repent, what have you, then it doesn't count. Yeah, Court. Uh, us goofy Lutherans, yeah. we, we don't go along with that because from what I understand, where is that uh, age of reason where you know yes. you're saved? Yeah, well, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's part For of it. For some is, people, it probably would be at 95. Exactly. For some of us, it never comes, Court. For your, um, for your daughter. <laughs> it's already there. a long there. time ago. Age, age of accountability. Right. The idea of the age of accountability is not a biblical idea, or at any rate, has a very thin biblical basis. What we do know is that every single one of us is born into sin, that Jesus says, go and baptize all nations, presumably including, I mean, not making kind of age distinctions there, um, and that he, he has a heart for all people. So you have on the next page there that, that passage from Mark 10, um, and it's in the other Gospels as well. They were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Okay? But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, a couple things about that. One, obviously that's not a passage about baptism per se. But it, is, it does show us the Lord's heart for children. And it tells us two things. One, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, don't worry about bringing them to me. They're blessed already. They don't need my blessing. Okay? That suggests or implies they do need that blessing. They do need um, the, the Lord to open his arms to them. Um, but uh, 
it all it does reinforce for us then too. Yes, they need it, and yes, it is for them. Let those children come to me, uh, for to such belongs the the kingdom of God. Um, so to me, it's not that alone is not a slam dunk. But let me give you one other passage, which um, to me is as close to a slam dunk just from the New Testament as you can get, and that's in Second Timothy chapter three. And I only came across this in the last year, and uh, really blew my hair back. Um, which looks very nice and windblown. Second <laughs> Timothy chapter three. Um, now the word that's used um, in that passage, what, well, Peter of Jesus welcoming the little children. Um, Mark doesn't use it, but Luke uses it. It's the Greek word brephe. Uh, and brephe, brephe uh, literally means a uh, an infant. A suckling babe, and it's even used of John the Baptist while he is still in the womb. Another um, uh, important pro-life scripture, pro-life argument. And it's described of John while he is still in the womb. He's described as a brephe. So a brephe is from, uh, it's suggesting the very earliest infant and even indeed a baby that's still in the womb. Now why does that matter? Because in 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, Okay, verse 14, and I'll just make note that this is Lily's confirmation verse, as we know, we talked about this recently. Um, it says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason I never had caught this before is because the ESV and just about every other translation wusses out on this. Because in verse 15, it says, here it says, how from childhood. But in the Greek, you know what it says? How from when you were a brephe, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings um, and have firmly believed, in fact. Um, what this implies to me, remember, Timothy is a second generation Christian, right? He's, he's the next generation after Paul that um, the faith is being handed on to. And we learn that um, Timothy's mother and his grandmother were believers. Um, what I think that it's alluding to is that Timothy himself was baptized as an infant, as a brephe, and reared in the faith um, as that next generation. A similar case is made, um, this is not a biblical writing, but um, for St. Polycarp, um, he was uh, uh, also a, a next generation believer. His teacher was John, the Apostle John. And he says um, in his martyrdom, he, he talks about how um, something like, I've belonged to the Lord for eight, my 86 years of my life. Um, and he's, he was an old man. Um, and that too is read kind of obliquely as a, um, a comment to the fact that he was baptized and claimed for Christ from the time that he was, a, he was an infant. All right. This is a super long-winded um, answer to this, or you know, unpacking of it, but it's something that just comes up so often. I think it's important to spend some time with it. And this really is an important passage when talking about not just baptism, but infant baptism specifically. So let me stop there for um, questions or, or comments or pushback uh, about that. Yeah, Matt? What we were talking about when we sat down here today was an account of someone that we know who was raised... Lutheran, mm. um, mm-hmm. and later, mm-hmm. I, I believe, is some form of Baptist following doctrine. Yeah. Um, but essentially, feeling 
he, he had that, got himself baptized again because he looked back on his life as a youth, probably teenager, college years, you know, not behaving in a godly way and sure. thinking, I couldn't have had the Holy Spirit, right? right, right. I, my baptism didn't work for Didn't me, take. Yeah. So I had, and that is so common. Yes. And, um, so to me, it seems like there's an important boundary of what baptism is and what it is. You know, it's not necessarily yeah. like, you're now perfect. Right. You know, you're, you're, you're now internally yeah. just like Jesus. Um, yeah. In, a, in an earthly like way, right? You know, while, while you're in your temporal existence, and because um, it's possible he's not perfect right now, right? Even after being baptized as an adult, right? So exactly, yeah. yes, <laughs> yes. So some discussion of what it is and what it isn't, I think, is is appropriate. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, I mean, when in baptism we are are set apart and claimed and filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, you use the analogy, and it comes up elsewhere in the scriptures. Of it's that seed of faith has been implanted in the heart. But it is possible if that seed wasn't watered um, through his life, and says, I, I wasn't living a very godly life. A, it could be just because he's a normal person, he's a sinner, and he continues to be both saint and sinner. Or it could be truly that the, the seed hadn't really been watered and nurtured, and so faith hadn't flourished um, like it could have. Um, I, you see those. Both of those things happen in different people's lives. And I think sometimes it's interpreted um, as, oh, I didn't, I didn't have faith up to then, when it could just as well be looked at as, oh, I had, the faith hadn't necessarily um, taken full root yet and flourished. Because really, for different people, that comes at different stages in life. For myself, I was baptized as a baby, brought up in a Christian household, but I wouldn't say my faith really took hold until I got to college. Doesn't mean I was a pagan before that, or that baptism hadn't worked. It's just I, I started to spend a lot more time in the scriptures, and it really, you know, came home to me. So, yeah, you do see that a lot. Yeah, Lily. You said that your faith hadn't really uh, not taken hold. Yeah, taken yeah. hold until you got to college. Does that mean you weren't saved until your faith started taking hold? I uh, no, I would say. I mean, I would say that I was saved absolutely because um, if. What's that? Because you're baptized. Because, because I was baptized, and it wasn't that I was unbelieving. Um, you know, if the smoldering wick he does not put out, right? If there's even the flicker of faith, you give the Lord any little crack, and he's going to seize hold of it, right? Um, so short of actually, like, disowning him or something like that and, and professing unbelief, um, and even then, perhaps, he's not going to let his, his own go, right? So, yeah, Becky. Maybe the flip side of this would this Brefe reference perhaps give some comfort to people who maybe know babies who are raised in Christian homes but are prevented from being baptized by parents who think that they need to wait? Yeah. If God recognizes faith where scripture is read and right. the baby is hearing that, right. I mean, I don't want to veer toward, No. you know, all I, kids are fine. Yes. Do you, you know what I'm trying to say? Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, God is way more merciful than we are. I think, um, and uh, yeah, he works. He works through the word in remarkable ways. And if I can take it even one step further, and I mean pastorally, um, when I think about people who I, mean, I have friends like this um, who lost children to miscarriage or stillborn, and uh, it can be a great source of grief upon grief to also have to, to think about that. But I do think. Um, I mean, as I say, John in the womb, the hearing, hearing the word. Uh, I, I think that God 
is so tenacious in his grace that he can seize hold of even one in the womb that gets that secondhand hearing of the word. I don't know. That's, you know, that's more of a conjecture, admittedly, right. but um, I think it's something to consider. Yeah, Court. Well, before I became Lutheran, yeah. the neighbors were Baptist, and they took me to their church. Mm. Okay, and I went there, and they had an altar call. Sure, yeah, right. Okay, and I went forward because all the teens in my row went forward. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, it's what we're supposed to do. And I, no pressure. No pressure. I knew nothing about nothing. Yeah. And I think God then said, I gotcha. I think, the, I think we the, didn't yeah. go to church until she, she went to the Lutheran church down the street. Right. And we had gone to see the Ten Commandments and started talking about right. religious things. Yeah. Which I knew little about, but, and we said, well, maybe we should start going. And that's when we started. Yeah. And then I was baptized. Mm-hmm. So I did things kind of backwards. Right. But I don't feel he has rejected me because of Well, Court, actually, I wanted to talk to you. But no, <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. So, <laughs> I'm absolutely. Like, just take your example of the altar call. I think the altar call is a, a very problematic practice. Yeah, because oh, I, I agree. Um, but. Can God still work in the midst of that? Absolutely. Yeah, he can. He can. His word is what does the work. It's not up to us always getting all our T's crossed and I's dotted the right way. And thank God for that, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, he called me way before. Yeah. And I mean, um, well, I guess my, the, the base of my beef with kind of the altar call and, and that sort of thing is it's basically replaced baptism where instead of baptism being the biblical practice where we kind of hang our hat and say, you know, it's objective, external, I can, you know, you can have a picture of it. Here's the moment when God took hold of me. Instead, it becomes a very subjective and internal thing. And that becomes much more wishy-washy. And so in the final analysis, my main beef with it is a pastoral one, which is I've just seen it too many times that for somebody, if they're just trying to go back to an altar call and then like, we're kind of chuckling. Yeah, they went, you went down and everybody else in the road did. That can't help but leave you open to questioning, okay, was this genuine? Did I really believe? Or was it just kind of psychological manipulation? Everybody else is going. Did that still count? And it, it leaves you susceptible to those sorts of doubts yeah. where the Lord does, he wants us to have certainty and confidence in terms of our identity. I think that's why he gives us this very tangible, external gift of holy baptism. So what, I mean, you guys know this is what Luther would always say. When he would have his bouts with the devil, he'd be you know, dueling with him in his kind of profound spiritual warfare way. He would respond to Satan, I'm baptized. You know, that confidence, back off, devil. I know that I'm one that belongs to the Lord. So, good. All right, pressing on. <laughs> the promise is for you, for your children, etc. And then verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Uh, all right. So here, again, it's like, I, I, have, I really like the ESV. I think it's a great translation. I looked at other translations. They do the same thing. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Like, this just seems to run completely contrary to the message of grace. So now it's just being put back on me. Save yourself. Um, 
I'm here to encourage you. Um, the, the Greek word here, the verb, is sothete. Let me hear you say sothete. Oh, that's weak. Well, it's, so it's, it's from the verb sozo, which is your normal say verb. Okay? But here it is in the passive voice. Okay, you guys remember what the passive voice is? It's what your English teacher always told you don't do. Okay? Um, but there is a place for it. And it comes up regularly in the, in the New Testament um, for the simple fact that we are passive actors when it comes to our salvation. So what, what Peter literally says here, and it's just difficult, I think, to translate is what it comes down to, is what he literally says is, let yourself be saved. Okay? It's the saved verb, but in the passive voice. Be thou saved. Okay? If you were to put it in kind of the king's English. Um, it's a passive thing. And um, it, uh, a parallel that I might offer would be like Romans 12, which says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay? The um, assumption there is that you are not the one that's doing the transforming. The Holy Spirit is the one who is transforming you. It's in that passive voice. Be transformed. Same kind of thing here. Passive voice. Be saved. Be saved from, Peter says, this crooked generation. And what does this mean? Well, number four on, on your handout, on page two, I say the Holy Spirit is saving souls for the new people of God. So talk about the first half of that. The Holy Spirit is the one that is doing the saving here. Let yourself be saved, okay? Um, but then for the new people of God, the reason I say that is because Peter is um, echoing and alluding to a very important passage from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32 is uh, the capstone to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And at the end of Deuteronomy, this is, you know, they're, they're right on the precipice of coming into the promised land. Moses knows he's not going with them. And so this is kind of Moses' last swan song um, with the people of God. And God gives Moses this song to teach the people so that it will be a witness for them. Okay? So the people were to memorize this song which basically goes on to say within the song what terrible people they are and how they're always stiff-necked and turning away from God. Like, Mom, I don't know about this song. You know, bad music. But um, a key line there toward the beginning of the, of the song says this, The rock, can you smell what God is cooking here? His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And then the contrast comes. They, meaning the Israelites, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So this phrase becomes a kind of shorthand for talking about the Old Testament people of God and how they have turned away from their God. It comes up also in Philippians 2 verse 15. Um, Paul also alludes to it there. And it's what I think that Peter is doing here is he is invoking that name and that identity, saying, look at that, what you guys learned uh, from that song from Deuteronomy 32 has come to pass, as now the Old Testament people of God did not receive their Messiah when he came to them, but instead rejected him. Though he was faithful and without iniquity, hmm, they have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So what's Peter's calling to them? He's preaching to Jews, remember here. He's saying, be saved from this 
crooked generation, no longer identify with the people of God who have spurned their Lord, but instead be part of the new people of God who profess Jesus as the, the Messiah. All right, that's, that's some pretty deep stuff right there, um, but is that clear? You kind of understand? <laughs> All right. You have to do some weaving. I mean, again, they are steeped in the, what we call, we call the Old Testament scriptures. And so we continually want to go back to that. If you've got a Bible that's got cross-references, those are really the most valuable thing in there. To look at those cross-references, especially when it's Old Testament stuff, look at that. See, what are they alluding to? What are the echoes that are showing up there? Because there's deep, profound meaning that's embedded in that. Why do they have them so little? I know. They've got to squeeze it all in there. Well, I mean, with those old Bibles, like when the monks were doing it, and it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, like six volumes, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of tiny. That's the one thing. I'm not a huge fan of, like, e-readers and that sort of thing, but it's one thing where it is helpful, where you can just kind of change the size of it and that sort of thing. But All right. Well, we got through four verses today. Uh, <laughs> still didn't finish that chapter, but um, that's Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll pick up in verse 42 next week and, uh, and continue on. So thank you very much.